what if there was no Calvary? Does it affect Christianity in any way? For a lot of people, it doesn't, and it wouldn't. Because their Christianity is just being a nice person. Their Christianity is walking into buildings and and greeting all their friends, and all of them sitting around and telling them how great everything's going in their life, and and going and having playdates with their friends and neighbors and all this stuff. And that's what Christianity is becoming in so many ways. And the blood of Christ that was poured out at Calvary is being taken away. And when we lose that, we'll lose our compulsion to worship. When you stop looking at Christ on the cross and consider and stop to consider that that was in your place, you will not be able to worship. What's the point of worship? You'll listen to a good teacher. You'll follow some ethical, moral code of how to, how to behave, but you will never, ever come to a point of worship until you see Christ on the cross and see his blood spilled for you. Not for everybody, for you. And if it never becomes intimate to you, it will never become worship. So I want us to consider this. What do we do with this? So as we go through this text, I want us to consider what are these Hebrew believers First century Hebrew believers, what are they experiencing when they talk about Christ? What is it their their understanding of this? All right, let's review real quick where we've been. Um, In Hebrews 1, uh, we've said that the letter to the Hebrew people, this was a letter that continues to say, Jesus is better. All right, what comes next is always better. Okay, if we had something, now we have something new and what? New and better, new and improved, right? Well, it's always the advertising. It's new. Do they ever say, it's new, but it's not really as good as it used to be? Okay? Now, there's new music out there. Is it better than it used to be? No, the oldies are the good stuff, right? right even Lucas agrees with it. I got a young buck back there saying it's better, all right? But what happens when you come out with a new cleaning product? Does anybody ever go, it's new and not as good as the old stuff used to be? All right? I mean, we had New Coke, right? Anybody remember New Coke? You young bucks, y'all don't remember that. We had New Coke, and what happened about five minutes after it hit the market? Get this junk out of here. Bring back the classic. Well, that's not what Christ was. Christ is better. Anything that happens new or later is always better. So the prophets came along, and God spoke through the prophets, and then he spoke through his son, which is better. Which is better, the prophets, the servants, or the son? The sun's always better. Then we had the angels. Angels did some amazing stuff. I would love to be an angel, but listen to me on this. You do not become an angel when you die. Just want to clear that up. That never happens. It never will happen. It never has happened. Angels are angels. You're people. You're a people, and you're going to die, and you're going to go to heaven, and you're going to be people when you get in heaven. You're never going to be an angel. I wish I could say, because it would be cool, because you get to ride horses, and you get to, to like to fight in battles, and you get to do amazing stuff, and show up in bushes that are on fire, all right? It, it says in the text that the angel was in the burning bush, all right? So these angels, they get to give law, they get to show up and, and like scare donkeys, all right? You have Balaam, Balaam gets scared, why? Because a donkey is there with a flaming sword in his hand, and the donkey's like, I'm not going that way, all right? And that's when the donkey got beat up, and de- the donkey actually spoke, to Balaam. All right, it's a great story. But the angels get doing stuff, and they're doing stuff all throughout the Old Testament. But then Jesus comes along, and the author says what? 
Jesus is better. To which of the angels did he ever say, you're my son? You see, it's always an elevation. Jesus comes along and he's better than that. And he asks the question here, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How will we escape if we don't listen to what Jesus said as opposed to what the angel said? If we just listen to the law, it's not going to get us where we want to be. We've got to listen to what Jesus said when he was here, when he talked about how his blood covered our sins, all right? How he was going to die in our place. So the angels are great, but Jesus is better. The prophets are better. And today we're going to talk about the sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus is better than the sacrifices found all throughout the Old Testament, okay? So we've got like about 2,000, 3,000 years history of the Jewish people offering sacrifices. Now, when does this begin? Can anybody tell me when the first sacrifice was offered up according to the scriptures? Anyone? Noah. Noah gets off the boat, and you gotta love being an animal, all right? You've been an animal, you got on the boat, okay? Now, some people go, oh, it kind of freaked out because he sacrificed an animal. He goes, well, you just saved those two, and now what'd you just do to those two animals that you just saved? for all eternity. Now you just killed him. No, he took some extra animals on board. It says he took seven of every clean animal, all right, and put those on. So poor animal, he's been on the boat for like a year, all right, getting seasick, all right, the monkeys are over here, and the elephants are over here, and all this stuff are over here, and all of a sudden you're thinking, yay, land, all right, you know, little muskrat or whatever it was out there kissing the ground, yay, I'm good, and Noah goes, uh, come here, little buddy, <laughs> and he sacrifices it. Why? Because Noah understood that the sacrifice had to take place for his sin, for the sins of his family. That sacrifice is the way that God propitiates. Big word right there, all right? Everybody got this word? To propitiate is to make a payment, all right? It's when you get that ticket, when you get that speeding ticket in Washington, D.C. Did you pay it? Good, all right? So, sorry, I just, that just hit me. I was like, oh my goodness, we do have one of those, all right? Yeah. Ashley, you know, crazy driver Ashley up in Washington, D.C., just doing donuts in the middle of interstate. All right, got a ticket. No, she was speeding, and like, she got hit by one of those camera things up there, all right, in Northerners, all right? She got hit with this, and we got a ticket. So we were enslaved in sin. We were sort of in condemnation to the, what are Baltimore, Massachusetts, Chevy Chase. Maryland, Chevy Chase, Maryland Police Department, all right? So we had this thing holding us over us. But Ashley wrote a check, and now she made an atoning work, a propitiating work was paid. So now we no longer have that. We no longer have that hang over our head, as long as the check clears. <laughs> so that's the key part. All right? But that's the idea. So Noah said, I've got to do this. We get to Abraham. Abraham offers sacrifices. Who is Abraham's sacrifice? Who is he about to sacrifice for his own sin? His son, Isaac. God said, I need you to, I'm going to test you. I want you to go and I want you to sacrifice your son as a burnt offering. We're going to look at what you have to do to a burnt offering here in a second because I want you to see this. And what does he do? He takes his hands and he goes to his son and he literally places his hands on the head of his son. What's that doing? What, what does that communicate? What is that showing? He's taking his hands, putting them on the head of the son. So what he's doing, he's taking all of his sins and saying, I'm placing these on the head of my son. And now I'm going to kill my son 
So my sin is taken off me, placed on the Son, he's killed, therefore there is no more sin. That was the symbolism involved in this. I want you to come over here. Um, hold your place there in Hebrews. Come over here to Leviticus. Because I want you to understand what it meant. What, what really took place when we, when we sacrificed something as a burnt offering. And think about you doing this to your son. Okay, you with me? You take doing this to your son. Leviticus 1 says that the Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Speak to the Israelites and tell them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord from the livestock, you may bring your offering uh, from the herd or the flock. If his gift is a burnt offering, this is what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to give a burnt offering. God said, Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son that you love, and offer him up as a burnt offering. Okay? So this is what he's supposed to do. If his gift is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to bring an unblemished male. He must bring it to the entrance to the tent of meeting so that he may be accepted by the Lord. He is to lay his hands on the head of the burnt offering so it can be accepted on his behalf. Very careful. Watch that language. He, he must be accepted on his behalf to make atonement, that propitiating work, right? To make a payment for him. Verse 5, now here's what you got to do. Here's what Abraham was about to do to Isaac when the angel, all right, angel's back again, when the angel of the Lord said, whoa, stop, don't do that. Now I know that you love me. He says this in 5, he is to slaughter the bull before the Lord. Aaron's sons, the priests, are to be present, are to present the blood and sprinkle it on all sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he must skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron the priest will prepare a fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. Aaron's son, the priest, are to arrange the pieces. Hello, the pieces of Isaac. The head and the suet or the, the bowels on top of the burnt offering uh, or the burning wood on the altar. The offerer must wash its entrails and shanks with water. Then the priest will burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a fire offering of a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Do you know that's what Abraham was about to do to his son? And this is the system God set up. God set up this system of offering sacrifices. Right? And he gave the law to them. We keep going with this. You know, over and over, on the Day of Atonement, they come and they celebrate this day where the bull would be killed for the blood of the priest, and then the bull would be killed for the blood or for the sins of the people. And then they would take two goats, and they would kill one goat and sacrifice the one goat for all the sins of the people. They would take another goat, and the, the priest would put his hands on the goat. And it would place all the sins of the people, and it would send them out. This is where we get the idea of a scapegoat. It comes right from Scripture. This scapegoat was sent out into the wilderness, taken out into wilderness to die. So literally, the sins of the people were being removed from them. And for the briefest moment, for the briefest moment, for one second of time, there was no sin on the head of the people of Israel. Anybody know what that feels like? Can you imagine? Once a year you come together and all your sins, all the burden of your sin has piled up 
And for one moment, the blood of these animals was sacrificed and, and it was spread out. And the goat, you see it go off and everybody's like, yay, our sins are gone. We have no sin on us. And then we get prideful about not having sin on us and dang, we're right back into the middle of sin again. And we've got another 365 days before we do this Yom Kippur, this Day of Atonement. And we come back and we yay, we're good. It's no more sin. And all of a sudden you stump your toe and you say something and you're like, ah, I'm back again. I got sin on me again. So they would do this year after year, day after day after day. So they would offer sacrifices to cover their sins, but they would kill animals. They would kill animals to cover their sin. Psalm 51, what I read. David hits a moment and he goes, God, you do not delight in sacrifices. There's a chink in the armor here. There's a chink in the armor of this sacrificial system because the king, David, a man after God's own heart, looks at this and goes, I should be able to just offer up a bull and I should feel better. I should feel redeemed. I should feel ransomed away from all this guilt, but I'm, I'm burning this cow, I'm burning this sheep, I'm doing this, and I offer up this sacrifice and there's something missing. This, I can't just kill this animal and feel better. It, it's not working for me. And there's this moment where King David goes, you don't really like this stuff, do you? All along, our religious people, our priests are saying, oh, if you sin, just come, offer up a cow, offer up a bull, offer up a goat, all better. You should feel good about yourself. And King David looks at that sacrifice burning and he knows his own heart. He knows his own sin. He knows that is not enough. There's no way that's enough. There's no way you accept that, God. There's no way you delight in that sacrifice. And there's this moment of hesitation where the Hebrew people separate religion from reality. And they know that's not enough. That the blood of an animal cannot cover the blood, the sin of a man. And this is when the foreshadowing begins to start. And we start to see the pictures of the son of David, the one who will become flesh and die in the place of other flesh. And it's all going to change in this moment, okay? So let's go to Hebrews 2, and let's read through this. Like I said, you've got your sheet. You can work off that if you want to. Like I said, I broke it down a little bit so to make it a little easier to see what they were writing. And again, let's remember, this is about 60 A.D., all right? It's about 30 years after Christ has, been, has died, was resurrected, all this. The, the, the fervor for the Christian movement in the Jewish sect was, was very strong. But at the end of about 30 years, the persecution starts to hit hard. All right? And it starts to get tough. And so that's the purpose of the letter to the Hebrews. It's to encourage them. It's to say, don't drift away from Christ. Don't, don't slide by and sort of roll back into sort of this Jewish mentality, this Jewish uh, practice. Don't roll back and go, oh, you know what, those sacrifices. As long as we had the sacrifice, we felt good about ourselves. We could check our box off. And we, we didn't just have to rely on this guy that died 30 years ago. So the whole point of the letter is writing to them saying, look, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Don't slide back into what you had. Okay? So let's read a little bit. Uh, Hebrews 2. I'm going to start in verse 9 there. You say, but we see Jesus. But we do see Jesus. May lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace, he might taste death for 
Everyone. Who? Everyone. Um, who's left out? So when you use the word everyone, it means how many people? So, so everyone, right? So we're saying everyone? Hitler. Osama bin Laden. You. Trust me, you're all in the same camp. The blood of Christ, he tasted death for everyone. Is there anyone who cannot come to Christ? Is there anyone for whom the blood of Christ, ah, you're too bad. Is there anyone that God has said, ah, I, I didn't mean it for you. I just meant it for these people over here. Jesus. Judas? I would disagree with you. I think Judas had every opportunity to come to Christ, but he chose not to. I think the blood of Christ covered Judas. I think the blood of Christ says everyone, because right here in the text it says, who did it cover? Everyone. Can we throw Judas in there with everyone? We have to, because it's everyone. The blood of Christ covered Because God so loved everyone in the world? For God so loved everyone. 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 This is not about some people are chosen and some people are not chosen to have the blood of Christ poured out for them. Everyone. Everyone. All right? Did I make my point up right there? Everyone. You want me to show you the Greek word? It's panta. Guess what it means? Everyone. All right? All. All right. Let's keep moving. All right. Didn't mean to belabor that point too much. Actually, I did, but that's okay. All right. He might taste death for everyone. So he's crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering in death. Now, does it say that he tasted um, a great teaching ministry for everyone? That he was crowned in glory with honor because of his teaching ministry? No, but how many people just attribute that's what Christ was? Christ was just a great teacher. No, he wasn't. Well, I don't want to disagree with the fact he was a great teacher. He was a great teacher. But that's not all. The point of him was Calvary. The point of his coming was him to die in your place for. The word for everyone is the word who pair. It means on behalf of. He died on your behalf. For you. In your place. Whatever word you want to use. This idea of atoning, this paying the ticket. What if Christ came along and said, here, I'll write the check for you, Ashley, so you don't have this speeding ticket. That's the idea. He died for you on your behalf. Let's don't, I'm just going to belabor that point. Keep going with that. All right, here we go. 10. For in bringing many sons to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, all things exist for him and through him, should make the source of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sacrifices and those who are, excuse me, for the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. I will sing hymns to, in the, to you in the congregation. Again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, again, not through his teaching ministry, but through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who are held in slavery all their lives by the, fear, by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but help Abraham's offspring. 
Therefore, he had to be like his brothers in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. To make propitiation, there's our word, to make that atoning payment for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tested and has suffered, he is able to help those who are tested. All right? So let's break this thing down a little bit today. Let's look at this. And again, we've got to come back to this idea. These are Jewish people. They've experienced, they've seen, they've continued to do all these sacrifices for all this time. Okay? When did the sacrifices actually stop in Jerusalem? Because, they, you know, if you go to Jerusalem today, are you going to see priests sacrificing animals and lambs and stuff? No. Why not? They don't have a temple. You got no temple, you got no altar. You got no altar, you can't do a sacrifice. So when did the sacrifices actually cease in Jerusalem? In 70, when the temple was destroyed. The temple was destroyed, the altar was destroyed. You can't do sacrifices without an altar. So in 70 AD, the sacrifices stopped. Now you've got to understand, we're about 10 years before this when this letter is written. So what's going on in Jerusalem? What are the priests doing on a consistent daily basis? Sacrifices and sacrifices and sacrifices and sacrifices. And what's the author saying here? Jesus dealt with all that. Jesus is better than what you're doing with that animal right now. Jesus, because the temptation for these people, again, was to drift right back into normal Jewish life and to not face this persecution. So what do we see? We see Jesus tasting death for everyone. Look at this first phrase. Bringing Many sons to glory. What does Romans 3.23 say? I'll start you. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what's he do? He brings many sons to glory. Literally, the word here is ago, which means to lead. All right? So it it doesn't mean he picks you up. It's not the word Pharaoh. Pharaoh would be, I'm going to pick you up and put you on my back and I'm going to carry you. No, it says he leads. He leads all these who have fallen short of the glory of God, which literally means, all right, you, you take some kid and he goes to the store and he goes, I want to buy this thing that costs a dollar and he's got a dollar in his hand. Now, what's the problem? We have a wonderful government that does what to us? Taxes us, okay? So you go, Lucas goes to the store. He says, I want to buy this Coke. It's a dollar. I got a dollar in my hand. He goes up to the counter and what happens? He goes, it's a dollar. Here, here's my dollar. What? Lucas falls short comes up lacking in the amount of money he needs to purchase that. This is the word from Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short, come up lacking in the glory of God. So we've got all these people who are sitting, all of history, all of us have come up short of the glory of God. We come up lacking. We go, we go, hey, I'd like to come into the glory of God. And God looks at us and goes, well, you've fallen short. You don't have enough. You don't have what it takes to come into my kingdom. So you can't come in. You are separated from me. Christ comes along. In his death, he does what? Everybody with me, come this way. Goes to the gates of heaven, and Jesus goes, hey, all those guys are with me. And he brings all of us into his glory. How? Through his teaching ministry? Through cross through the cross of Calvary. They are with me. And God looks at them and goes, oh, I see your blood. They're all covered. Come on into your glory. Come on into this glory. So he brings many sons into glory. 
becoming what? Look at verse 10. For in bringing many sons to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, all things exist for him and through him, should make the source of their salvation perfect through teaching, through suffering. All right? This idea of source. Uh, let me see. How are we going to work this word? Um, the source of their salvation. See if I have your Bible up. Is that a different word there? The source of your salvation. Founder. The founder. Arch Ago. Alright? Um, Danny, you get to watch the Chicago Bears play a football game this year. I will buy you tickets, club level seats, whatever you want. I'll buy you Bears. Whose game, what game are you going to go see? If I can buy you tickets to one game, who do you want to see the Bear, the Chicago Bears, the Bears play? Who do you want to see them play? Probably the Browns, because they'll win that game. Because they'll win that game. No, uh, wrong answer. You want to see who? You want to see the Packers, don't you? Right? Because Pop's right there. Be there. Why? Because they are what? Their arch enemy or their arch rival. All right? North Paulding is going to play East Paulding in a couple of weeks, right? And who's going to be at that game? Everybody associated with North or East Paulding is going to be. Why? Because they're arch rivals. You with me? So Christ is the arch ago. Ago means to lead. To bring them along. So not only will he bring them into glory, but God made him the arch leader to lead them in. Why didn't he say that about the sacrifices? Why doesn't he ever talk about the sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats? Why does he talk about them as being the arch leaders? Because it wasn't enough. It was never enough that Jesus, the blood of a man, now can bring all of us in. He is the arch ago. The sacrifices were what? The author is going to say later on, they were a copy and a shadow of what was to come. This was to give us an idea. This was like, oh, I get it. He's the lamb of God. That's what's supposed to happen. But what was happening to the Hebrews? They had a moment of... Oh, Jesus was this. And after a while, what started to happen? This is hard. People persecute us. It'd be a lot easier just to go back to our way of doing things. Go back to lambs and bulls and goats and all this stuff. Because Jesus is not easy. And the author pleads with him, don't go back. Don't go back to what was easy because it's not going to bring you to glory. The blood of bulls and goats is not going to bring you to glory. The blood of that's not the source of your salvation. That's not the leader. You don't want to go back to that. Keep going with the text. Verse 11. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. Sanctified is a fancy word. It's the Greek word hagios. We get our word holy from this. The question is, how do you become holy? Can you work your way into holiness? All right, you got a clean, nice white sheet. You just got it, or a white shirt, or a white dress, or a white something. All right, and some kid walks by you and just Kool Aid. How do you make it white again? You don't. Kid's got a brand new white pair of baseball pants, right, guys? White pair of baseball pants. You love wearing white baseball pants? Yeah. 
You go play down in South Georgia. Slide into that nice red clay. How do you make those pants white again, Amanda? <laughs> go to Dick's Sporting Goods, buy another pair. All right? Because why? Because you can't make white baseball pants clean again. Pressure wash them. Good, tr good luck. It'll work a little bit, but it ain't going to make them clean again. And trust me, you can never make yourself holy again. Ever. You cannot sanctify yourself. I don't care how many good deeds you do. It doesn't matter. Somebody gets stupid, gets pregnant. How do you make yourself unpregnant? How, how, do, you, how do you do that? Do you be really pure? Really, you know, all that? And it, it'll just go away? The problem will go away? No. How do you make yourself sanctified, holy? You can't do it. But Christ did. Because it says what? For the one who sanctifies, the one who makes you holy. You need to just sit in this for a while. There was a point in time when every single one of us was lost, unholy, going to hell. And then Calvary happened. And it changed everyone. It had the potential to change everyone. Because in that moment, you were made holy. You could walk into the presence of a holy God and your God said, welcome. Come on in. Come on in. I have nothing against you because of the blood of Christ. Period. Nothing else. So he rolls into this thought here in backside of 11. So that's why God is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I proclaim your name to my brothers. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Again, I will trust in him. I, here I am with the children God gave me. It's an identity thing. You're now brothers. Jesus is big brother. Jesus is a big brother who leads you along. All right? Court is the big brother leading Caden along. All right? So if it's not really, it's like a five-minute difference there. Or no, one minute. One minute difference. They grabbed one, then they grabbed the other. All right? It was done. All right? So he's not that much a big brother, but how many of you have big brothers? Danny, you got a big brother. All right? And he leads you into righteousness, right? All your life, he's shown you the way, how to be the perfect brother. All right? Now, Jennifer, you've got a little sister, right? You've been leading Jill all these years, showing her the way, right? Oh, gosh. I've got a big brother. I've got a big brother. Yeah. No, nah, yeah. Whatever. Well, let's keep moving on. All right? Ashley's, Ashley's a big sister. She's been leading her sister. all. See, Jesus is the perfect big brother. He not only sacrificed on us, but also leads us in the way of righteousness. This is his point. 14. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might. Now, what's following here? I'm going to get fancy on you here. There are three subjunctive verbs that follow this. Everybody with me? Subjunctive verb, simple. I'll, let me explain it. A subjunctive verb is a might verb. It's a potential thing. This could happen. All right, all the stuff's on the table to make it happen so it could happen. So look at these three. So that he might, number one, destroy the one holding the power of death. That is the devil. All right, the devil, the, this, we get this word from this. Diabolos. All right, maybe that's a Spanish kind of a thing, right? Diabolos. All right, break it down. It means two things. This is the word, bolos. All right, we get our word ball from it. What do you do with the ball, Lucas? You throw the ball, okay? 
So you throw, so the diabolos is one who throws things through. Dia, diam, diameter. He throws things at you. Remember when you did this in high school? Remember when you did this in college? Remember when you did this last week? And not only does he throw it at you, but he also throws it in the face of God. Remember when court did this? And what does God say in that moment? No, he didn't. I'm just going to ignore that. What does God have to do in that moment when Satan throws our sins at him? God has to agree. God has to acknowledge. God can't just ignore it, pretend like it didn't happen. That would not be a just God. God takes the accusations of Satan and he says, yes, I agree. And in that case, they are guilty. And in my justice, I agree with you, Satan. They are guilty and I must punish. There is a punishment there. And the judge then says what? But my son is going to be the one who takes the punishment, not them. You see, that's what Christianity is. It's not about being nice. It's being forgiven. It's being propitiated for. A payment is made in your place. So he does what? He does what to Satan? He does what to the DA who's throwing this accusation against you? All right? Yes, you're right. He did do wrong, but my son died in his place. So your argument has no effect in this courtroom any longer whatsoever. And what kind of message is this to a people who's been killing goats and doves and bulls for 1,500 years? Did they ever go, it's done, it's over. I sacrificed a goat. No, can you imagine the psyche of the Jewish people like David did? David watches this goat or this bull burn in his place and he's going, there's no way that's enough. There's no way God takes that in my place. And so the Jewish people for all these years have had what? This whole psychological doubt thing of how can that pay for me? How can I be made right by that? And Jesus comes along and says, I will do it. I will die in your place. And once And for all, the people can go, now I can trust in that. So what does he do? He destroys the one holding the power of death, the kratos of thanatos. Kratos, we get our democracy. means what? Rule by the people, our authority within the people. So this kratos, this power of death that's been held over us all these years, it's gone. What about Barabbas? What happened to Barabbas? Barabbas is there on the day of the crucifixion. Right? I always say he's the one person that really, really could have gotten what it means to have someone die in your place, to be propitiated for the substitutionary atonement, all these fancy <clears throat> seminary-type words. <clears throat> Barabbas is there. He's there. He's under arrest by the Roman people. The Romans are about to do what to him? What's about it? I, I mean, there was a cross available for Jesus. Remember, they didn't arrest Jesus until about 2 in the morning. They didn't bring him to Pilate until the next morning. They had a third cross. Guess who that was for? That was Barabbas' cross. Barabbas stands before him. He says, all right, I will let one of these guys go. I will release them. I will free them up. I will help Apolutrosis. They'll let them go away for free. And what happens? They, the crowd says, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. What do we do with this Jesus guy? Crucify him. So what happens to Barabbas? In the eyes of the Roman government, what happened to Barabbas on that day? 
What happened to the accusation against him? Absolutely gone. No accusation. How did Barabbas walk out of the Praetorian that day? Did he, did he kind of look over his shoulder, waiting for his sins to catch up with him? I love the way the Passion of the Christ portrays this. Because he's, hey, hey, he's like crazy, goofy guy, all right? But he walks out and he looks at one of the guards and he kind of goes, gives him one of these like, what are you going to do to me? What are you going to do to me? Because you've got nothing on me now. That's exactly what it means here when he said Christ destroyed the power of the one who's throwing these accusations against you. They're gone. And so you look in the face of the devil and you say, go ahead, accuse me all you want, but I am covered by the blood of Christ at Calvary and you can't touch me anymore. That's what Christ did at Calvary. Keep going with the next one. To destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and to free those held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Do you feel the dread of this? Do you feel the dread of relying on, on bulls and goats, the blood of bulls and goats going, if, when I die, I'll just go and say, hey, the blood of bulls and goats, that's what saved me. And like David going, I just don't know. So there, what was this? When you die, what happens to you? This fear of death, this dread of death, and it holds you in slavery. I want you to look at a passage. Come over here to, to Daniel 12. Somebody tell me, what, what's the one question that the religious leaders always want to ask Jesus? What, what's the one little topic that always comes to mind? What do you think, Lucas? Is heaven real? There, there's sort of a variation of that. What must I do to inherit what? Eternal life. All right? So you, uh, you're right on track with it. All right? So is heaven real? Is, is this, what can I do to inherit eternal life? For them, the phrase was olam haba. So the rabbis would get around and they would discuss, what must we do to inherit, inherit eternal life? What must we have to have olam haba? So when they come to Jesus, they say, Rabbi, join in our discussion. What must you do to inherit eternal life? Because what's the option? If I don't inherit eternal life, what do I get? Let's read it here. Look at Daniel 12.1. At that time, at the destruction, at the end of the times, at that time, Michael, the great prince who watches over your people, will rise up. There will be a time of distress. Literally means sarah. It's the time of persecution, tribulation. Hello? End times? There will be a time of tribulation, such as never has occurred since the nations came into being until that time. But at that time, your people who are found written in the book will escape. This is an end times prophecy. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. What does it mean to sleep in the dust? Come on, this is easy. Who sleeps in the dust? Dead people, okay? You with me? Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake some to eternal life, olam haba, and some to shame and eternal contempt. So here's the thing. When you die, you're going to awake to what? Eternal life, shame, and, and contempt. Which one do you want? Why do you think the rabbis are going around all the time going, how do we get in on the good side? All right, how do we get this? And they go, Oh, you sacrifice animals. Really? 
Is that going to really get me there? David questioned it. David, a thousand years before Christ, went, I don't know about this. This just doesn't seem right. And so what did the Jewish people do? Year after year, century after century, do you think they go, oh no, David was wrong. It's all about the bulls and the goats. As long as we have bulls and goats, we're good. No, what? There's this constant dread of death because when you die, you go sleep in the dust, but you're going to wake up and how you wake up is, eh. Christ comes along and says, no, you're no longer gonna fear that. I am the perfect sacrifice. I am the finishing sacrifice. I am the one who will lead you into glory. You can trust in me. And the author is saying to these people, you don't have to fear anymore. All you have to do is place your faith in what Christ did at Calvary. The blood of Christ covers you forever and ever and ever and ever for all you've ever done. You don't have to go in this fear of, oh, if I die, I don't know if I'm going to raise to eternal life. But that's not all. 16 says this, For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offering. So guess what, angels? You're not everyone. The blood of Christ did not cover you. He says in, the, in, um, in Matthew 25, he says, Depart from me, those I never knew you, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and what? His angels. The blood of Christ does not cover angels. They had their moment. They had their choice. It says, but go, blessed are you that I know. Go into the kingdom prepared for you from the beginning or the foundation of the earth. So this is not for angels. There's a different category here. 17 says, therefore he had to be like his brothers in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Now the Jewish people reading this letter are going, we found some. We know the high priest guy. So what does the high priest do? The high priest tells people sort of how to interpret the law, but he also does what for them? On Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, what does the high priest do? He goes into there on behalf of all the people, goes into the Holy of Holies, sprinkling the blood, because why? The blood always leads the way. Hello, Arch, Ago always leading the way. The blood always has to lead the way because if the priest walks in and he's got no blood or he's got it and he goes, oh, I forgot the blood. <laughs> Dead. Because he cannot stand in the presence of God. And by the way, that whole tie is the, the, the rope around the ankle so they can drag him out. No idea where that comes from. There's nothing anywhere in any text. It's something some Sunday school teacher made up and it's just been pushed for about 100 years now, okay? So if he died, he died. Everybody went, mm, I'm not sure what we're going to do now, okay? But blood always led the way. Why? Because you're not holy without the blood. And you cannot stand in the presence of holy God because you have fallen short of that glory. So therefore, he had to be like his brothers in every way, becoming a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Maybe your text says, before God. He's the one that comes before you. He's the faithful high priest who comes with his own blood and says, I've come into your presence, God, and I'm bringing these guys with me to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Which people? Did it say to make propitiation for the sins of the elect? No. It says the people, literally the laos or the laity, all right? To make propitiation for the sins of of the people. You can tie this back. Why did he die? Who did he die for? For the elect? No, he died for everyone. Panta. Everyone. 
So to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to make this atoning payment. In Luke 18, Jesus tells a story. He tells this parable. He says, there were two men who came up to the temple to pray. He said, one man was a Pharisee, and he came up with all his royal garb and all of his big boxes on his head and all these stuff, and and he stood before all the people, and he stood on the corner, on the corner where everyone could hear him, and he prayed, and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like those people over there. I thank you that you made me this way. I thank you that I fast all this time, and I do all these great things. You're so lucky to have me, God. And another man. I get the picture. He's almost like crawling up the steps of the temple. He's a tax collector. And the text says he wouldn't even raise his eyes. He just, he couldn't bear to look up. And he said, make propitiation for me, God. Now your translation, what you've heard all along, he says, have mercy on me, God, because I'm a sinner. But literally what he asked was, make an atoning payment for me, God. It's this exact same thing. Make propitiation. I can't approach you. You've got to make a propitiating payment for me, God. And God said, okay. And he did. He said, you have to come to a point where you're just like that man. You see, Christians are not people who kind of go along with the whole Jesus thing. Christians, <laughs> true Christians, are people who have been on their face who've crawled up the steps of the temple, who cannot even bear to look up because they understand the weight of the sin in their own life. They realize how far they've fallen short of the glory of God. And they plead with this holy, righteous creator, God, God, will you please make an atoning payment for me? I can't make it myself. And they plead with this and they, they, they beat their chests with it and they are weeping and they're crying because they know their condition. They know the lostness of their condition. And they look up and, and they just they, they kind of just, God, please do something for me. Do something on my behalf because I can't do it myself. And God said, okay. And he nailed his son to the cross. And the blood of Christ in that moment made a propitiating payment for every single human being that's ever breathed. Every single human being who's ever been brought to life in that moment had the blood of Christ cover them as a propitiating, atoning work so that they could be led into the presence of the glory of God. So take Calvary away from Christianity, and what do you do? All you're left with is a bunch of nice people are going to hell because of their sin. Because he was the atoning payment for each and every one of you. The blood of Christ covered you took you out of your condition like the tax collector, could not raise his hand. Just please do something for me. And God said, I love you so much that I will. 
God loved you so much. You have a love from God. In the Hebrew, it's the hesed of God. This love that you could never imagine earning on your own. That that's the way God loves you in a way you could never possibly imagine. Paul says this, that, that you know, someone might possibly dare to die for a good person, but for, uh, for a righteous person. But he died in your sin. And Paul is amazed at this love and this blood that was poured out for you. If you never identify with the tax collector, crawling his way up the steps of the temple, pleading, God, please do something for me. You'll never be a true Christian. Let's pray.